0: The tragedy is that so many managers get told that to be a manager you mustn't show weakness, you mustn't show ignorance, you should always be in charge, you should always... That's just nonsense in today's world, and yet we continue to teach it.
1: Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose and integrity. In today's podcast, I get to talk to two heroes in the culture and leadership space, Ed and Peter Schein. If you've read anything on corporate culture, you probably found a reference to Ed Schein's work somewhere, as it has shaped much of the modern thinking on what organizational culture is, how it operates, and how it can evolve and change over time. Ed and his son Peter have written books like the Corporate Culture Survival Guide which is now in its third edition. They've also begun to focus increasingly on how we can build more healthy cultures and trusting relationships through humble leadership and humble inquiry. Whether you are a leader, HR or ethics professional, I'm just confident that you will get something important out of this conversation as we dig into why we should stop talking about culture change, how we can build more human workplaces and what really shapes culture. Ed Schein is a professor emeritus at MIT School of Management and is the 2012 recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association. Peter Schein is the co-founder and CEO of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute in Menlo Park. Prior to that, Peter was a strategy and corporate development executive at large and small technology companies in Silicon Valley. Ed and Peter's latest book, Humble Inquiry, second edition, is an international bestseller and available for order. Before we jump into the conversation, if you enjoy this podcast, I would be so, so grateful if you would take the time to rate or subscribe this podcast on iTunes. It helps us get the message of heart healthy organizations to much more people, and it means so much to me and our team. Thank you in advance. Ed and Peter, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: So, I want to begin by thanking you both for how your work and insight have contributed to our collective understanding of organizational culture and leadership. To me personally, I was coaching the leadership team of an organization that had gone through a major scandal and crisis when I first read your seminal book, The Corporate Culture Survival Guide, which I know there's a actually a new updated version of available now. And, and we were struggling to understand the underlying patterns, beliefs, and assumptions in the culture when one concept in the book really led to an epiphany. You wrote that culture is so hard to change because it's built on what people believe has made the organization successful. And as we, based on that insight, started to ask what leaders and staff believed had made the organization successful in the past, we were finally able to tap into the underlying layers of the culture. And this understanding became a foundation of a journey of of change and health that I was so happy to be a part of and so grateful for the insight that you gave into that process. But I wanted to start by asking you, in your research and your hands-on work with evolving or renovating or changing, whatever word we want to use, culture, what is the one insight that has had maybe the biggest impact on how you think about culture?
2: Well, there's two things, because it relates to culture change and leadership. And that is that my undergraduate university training was in social anthropology. And if, if nothing else, you'll learn in that curriculum that culture is resilient, sticky, enduring, and not something that is manipulable uh, in the way that oftentimes in business, we feel like we can manipulate. We can make a strategic change that has an impact immediately, and our sales results are different next quarter. We don't think culture works that way. So the, the idea of um, identifying a set of ad- ideal values and behaviors and saying, we're going to change our culture to be like that, it doesn't align with what few hundred years of social anthropology theory tells us about how resilient culture is for good and bad. It's not something that's easily changed. A- as you mentioned in the, the new edition of the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, We actually introduced a metaphor to get people comfortable with the idea that changing culture is not going to be a simple linear process. Well, I mean, it might be, but normally one one would think of changing things that are so deep and so complex as things that has to be done iteratively and adaptively and not in some sort of linear machine-like process.
0: I would like to add a a practical point to that, which we've increasingly started to, to use. When a client comes to us or someone in an interview asks us about culture, I find myself saying, can you ask me whatever it is that concerns you, your worries or your business problems or whatever, without using the word culture? And that pretty well stops them dead because they realize then that they've used the word to cover everything. And in that process, it covers nothing. And so the big thrust of of working with culture is to say, what the hell are you talking about? You're talking about the, the whole history, personality, character, everything that you are today is culture. So if you really want to change that, fire all your top executives and bring in a whole new team and rename the company. Then you'll be changing culture. And whatever you thought
2: you were getting when you brought in those new people, you're probably going to end up with something different. (laughs) (laughs) Because all of this is dynamic and it's all about relationships and people you know, working with each other, and it's never it can be taken in theory or isolation. It's always how it evolves in the practice,
1: so building on that, of course, it I think it's true, but not perhaps the most encouraging <laughs> message uh, and uh, but i I think we need this truth we need this understanding because i think we make it into something that it's not and as you say we so easily think that we'll just put some values on posters and that is going to change things and then we get disappointed or people get disappointed when things do not actually happen but if if i would if i would ask you based on on your experience what are the things that you still see if an organization are working towards something where they see that, okay, there are aspects of our culture that we, and I actually, I, I like the concept of thinking renovation, because I think changing sounds like replacing, sounds like doing this big change. But if, if there's something that we need to renovate or something that we need to evolve, what are the things that you have seen are the most important to actually succeed?
0: Well, The obvious answer is to answer that question without using the word culture. What's wrong? The couch is too hard or the pictures on the wall are not hanging right? If you don't get specific and say, well, those are all elements of culture, sure they are. But until you specify what you're trying to renovate and even more important, why you're trying to renovate, I think the whole thrust of that book Uh, The Corporate Culture Survival Guide was to say to the manager leader, why are you trying to change anything? What's wrong? What's the problem? And the problem isn't your culture. The problem is some element which you need to be specific about, some behavior, or you're losing sales, or you're not getting enough innovation. Uh, You have to have something that you want to renovate before you should start a change program. So the biggest error that people make is they call it culture and get very vague about what they're trying to change. And then, of course, nothing much changes. And similarly, this pronouncement
2: that something's wrong, so we're going to call it a culture problem is really not saying anything. There may be some behaviors and values that need to be, you know, kind of rethought and realigned. Um, Even that's more specific than saying we have a culture problem. But we hear it all the time. It's the easiest thing to blame and the hardest
0: thing to change. I think it's equivalent to saying personality or character change. I think all of us think that there are times when our personality or character ought to improve or change, but we never do that in general. We do it because of something we've done wrong or someone we've insulted or Something has gone wrong, it's the what's gone wrong that has to be identified before we can even talk about our personality or character. So Why do we think that if we can't do this as individuals, we somehow magically can do it for as complex a system as as a company or a group that has a history of building up its own success base?
1: I think that's so helpful. And I think I would just encourage everyone listening to this to to really take that to heart and that we stop saying culture as a catch-all and actually start defining what the real issues are, what the real things that we're actually trying to address are. And I wanted to ask you if, if you would think about, let's say then, if an organization, if a leadership takes the time to actually not say that it's a general culture problem, but let's say it is a problem that we're not innovative enough, for example. What would you say are are some just key steps that you think are important to take to then understand, maybe first starting with then understanding how kind of the underlying or the systemic perspectives of that problem might look like so that you can address it in a constructive way?
0: Can I give you a Swedish example? I would love that. In Saab Combitech, which was the research arm of Saab, my client uh, discovered that he had seven or eight laboratories working for the different parts of Saab, Uh, you know, the truck company, the airline, airplane company, the military, and so on. And he could see as their boss that they had huge interdependencies and, and really needed to get to know each other and use each other rather than each just working for their separate business client. So we designed a three-day workshop, where on day one, uh, he brought the leaders of these seven groups into the workshop, the leaders in their top, a couple of top people. And we said, how, do, how does one understand how another group works? We gave them some questions and some things to observe. And then we created a program of having each of them visit one of the other companies and pretend to be, you know, the anthropologist. They're going to go look at that other lab and see what they observe going on there. So they spent a lot of time rest of day one and part of day two doing that, then reported back all their observations of these different laboratories. And just even having all that information, they looked at each other and said, well, we seem to be doing some of the same things. Maybe we should collaborate. What was needed was a mechanism for them to get to understand each other. And that could be done just by having them take some time to visit each other's laboratories and see what was going on there. So It's not that the outsider comes in and lectures them about you've got different cultures here. It's that you create a mechanism where they discover for themselves what they need to do differently. That's, to me, the essence of of good work with this kind of culture thing. It's the insiders that need to understand their subcultures and their bigger units and what's going on or what's going wrong. And the consultant has to help them do that.
2: One of the things that we try to do in the new edition of the Corporate Culture Survival Guide is to help with some vocabulary that in going through that process that Ed was describing, companies can start to use to, to try to separate You know, what they're seeing and feeling and experiencing in their technical culture, which is kind of the what we do, the strategy, the vision, the theory of competition for the business and what we see and feel and experience in the social culture, which is how, how we get along, how we relate to each other, how we function as different groups without working at at cross purposes with each other. And importantly, how we're all living within a context, a social, political, economic context, which is what we call the macroculture. So no company exists in, you know isolation. and you know generally most companies are, um, uh, if they're multinational companies, are quite global in their perspective. So taking into account this global macroculture, for instance, this past summer, what started in the US with the murder of George Floyd, but it became, a within a week, it became a global social justice movement. Well, that's a very powerful example of a kind of macro culture change that organizations had to be aware of. Because if we were ignoring that, All of a sudden, we were ignoring what was probably going to need to be an evolution in our diversity, equity, and inclusion theory for our company. Every company interprets it and evolves a little bit differently. But there was no doubt that that was a social justice movement that was going to impact how you ran your company and how you and your employees related to each other. So... That vocabulary of technical culture, social culture, and then macro culture, we think is helpful for people to try to break the problem down and start being able to create areas of, of agreement and probably some areas of disagreement around what is it in the, in the technical culture that we are aligned on or not aligned on? What is it in the social culture that we're aligned on or not aligned on? And using that vocabulary, to start to tease out what is reasonable to try to change. Again, I'm not going to be able to change all of it in one program, but what could we identify as a change that we want to make over the course of the next six months or year? The vocabulary will help identify that.
0: I, I can't help but throw in another Swedish example because it fits so well. There was a long time ago a request from some people in the Swedish government, whether the Swedish national industries, such as shipbuilding and so on, ought to have a single culture because culture was beginning to be important. And so I remember spending some time there in a discussion of uh, what was important about having a single culture. And they discovered that what they really wanted was a system for managers to be able to cross from all these different industries. But then when they got to examining what these industries were, the question became should a brilliant leader from Ramlosa be given a shipbuilding company or should a shipbuilder run a bottling company? And it got to be a very big issue that this desire for a macro culture even at the level of the country was a wonderful dream was from a technical culture point of view completely wrong and even more so from a from a social culture point of view the people who grow up in these industries become super experts in those industries and they're going to be very likely incompetent if they're just moved over as a big leader of another industry So it was a harsh lesson to realize that the dream of a common culture can be a terrible trap and lead you into very bad situations and you're better off honoring the subcultures.
1: I think that's super, super helpful. And again, I think it's just another example of how easily we just say things and we put out these statements or these goals that that are not really actually Grounded in in reality or or what is actually necessarily good for organizations. One, I wanted to to ask one more question on this topic. Just thinking, what are the things that or the the actions or behaviors of leaders that you think are the most kind of important in reinforcing or shaping culture over time? If we're not talking about the culture change initiatives, but just in the daily kind of act of leadership what are the things that are it's actually shapes or has the most impact on shaping or reinforcing a culture in a group
0: i wrestled with that a lot in the original book and there's a whole chapter on how leaders embed culture and i think it has two components first of all the manager leader has to have a relationship with her or his direct reports so that they pay attention to each other. And once that relationship exists, once the direct report actually notices that his or her boss cares about them, then the most powerful tool that the boss has is what he or she actually pays attention to and rewards or punishes if it isn't happening. It's really a daily thing. It's not announcing something. It's if every day I ask you, uh, are we making any money today? You're going to learn that profit is terribly important in that culture. Or if that same leader, let's take a safety area. How do you get a safety culture embedded is when you begin every meeting with a safety discussion. What's going on today? Is anything going wrong? Is anything different today? Uh, I think people pay attention to what their bosses care about and pay attention to and reward. We hear so much these days about authenticity
2: and vulnerability and curiosity, and we hear so much about them that the, the words start losing their meaning. That's exactly what Ed was describing. He's describing, you know, a leader who kind of has enough of their own sense of self and sense of purpose that nobody questions their authenticity when they, you know, come into work that day with their immediate work groups, or when they're giving a, you know, an all hands to a ten thousand person organization. Nobody questions that authenticity. That's a sign of sort of genuine, powerful leadership. At the same time, if that Leader is never able to show some vulnerability. Um, people are going to start to question the authenticity because it's not human. I mean, we're we're not machines. I think that's that's why we see all of these examples of great leaders. And you know, if there's a through line, it's that um, people believe them. They're not inauthentic. They are authentic. I hate to go there, but we experienced this in the U.S. with our recent election. That, you know, one of the explanations that people give for why Joe Biden became more popular than Donald Trump, and they were both very popular, they both got a lot of votes, but was that people believed Joe Biden. They believed who he was. Um, and and people started to question whether what Donald Trump was saying was, was what he was going to do. Everybody looked at Joe Biden and said he's going to try to do what he says he's going to do. That was, a, it was an authenticity that people believed in. That's very important. The days of the the sort of detached, professionally distant manager as CEO, I just think those days are gone.
1: I love what you're saying is as I'm hearing it, it is that we need to have authentic leadership. And we, we talk a lot about practicing courageous humility. And I, I think that's a part of it. And And also that we need to have authentic relationships And then we need to be very consistent with what we're actually rewarding and celebrating and acknowledging and promoting and also the things that we're not tolerating. And you write... I think it is in humble leadership that in order to lead what has increasingly come to be labeled culture change or transformation, which we've talked a lot about, the relationship between the emergent leader and the organizational followers who will implement the changes has to become more personal and cooperative, level two relationships. So what signifies uh, level two relationships?
0: I think the bigger context in which this has to be put is that at least in leadership and management, we have lived with some very deep basic assumptions about work and about the linearity of work and that organizations are machines and that the best way to run a machine is to have every part know what it's doing. And uh, Frederick Taylor said, we can do that. We can measure work and we can train people to do exactly what their role requires. And so we built up over 100 years a monstrous machine of how managers are there to assign people to their proper roles and then maintain professional distance. Everybody stay in their own job, and the manager's job is to assign those roles and make uh, give incentives and motives and controls to make sure that everything works smoothly. And this worked. It, this wasn't just adopted because somebody said so, but it created the assembly line and all sorts of marvelous industrial uh, achievements. But technology changed and work became more complex. What's happened in the last, what, 50 years with uh, the social media, with uh, information technology, with biotechnology, suddenly identifying those clear jobs and those clear duties that someone in their role was supposed to do became very difficult. And the manager, much to her horror, discovered that she needed to ask questions of her direct reports in order to make a decision. She just didn't know enough. And I think the smart company today has figured that out and said, maybe this transactional level one role-based managerial system is no longer appropriate for the kind of work that many of our industries are facing, the boss has to get to know the people that report to him or her. That's what level two is. Shrink the psychological distance. Get to know your people. Why? Because if you then ask them for help, they will actually help you. They will tell you the truth. They won't tell you everything is fine, boss, when in fact it isn't. So, the correct model for the future is managers and the teams and the groups within which they work have to seek those level two trusting relationships. And that's what we end up calling authentic. But authentic means we get to know each other so that we can be open and trusting with each other.
2: The other thing that I would add is that we we move from a model where a manager has the authority to ask his people, her people for answers to questions, right? The basic sort of idea of it kind of derives from the command and control argument to a model where there's a, the level two relationships abound in this group, characterized by openness and trust, so that, as we like to say, the leader or the manager gets answers to questions they haven't even asked. In other words, there's an open information and sharing value that provides for a, you know, if you want to think of it as sort of a, a synergy of ideas because everybody is allowed and feels safe to share what's on their mind, to share you know, something that they just learned, something that could well be pertinent, but isn't in response to a question. <laughs> it's part of the substrate of how that group you know, behaves and performs that, that they believe it's a safe environment to share ideas. Because that's where new things come from. That's where, you know, people sharing ideas is where innovation comes from.
1: And you've written about how that to, to develop those type of relationships, like you say, you have to get to know each other. And you you talked about some like tactics, I would say, that are kind of to reveal something about yourself as a leader, that you give something that is more personal about yourself and maybe also to reveal something of the things that you struggle with and and so on. Could you say something about that? What are maybe one or two tactics that you think that leaders can do to actually build that relationship? And of course, it has to come from a place of authenticity and, and actually wanting to have that relationship.
0: The simplest answer to that, from my point of view, is the humble inquiry itself. If I ask a question to which I don't know the answer, I'm revealing to you that I don't know the answer. And that might surprise you. You might think, gee, boss, you, don't, you really don't know? No, I don't. And that was very well exemplified by Ken Olson and the entrepreneur who created Digital Equipment Corporation who would wander down to engineering and sit down next to a guy working on a piece of a, a computer and say, what are you working on? And at first, the engineer might shrink in fear, saying, oh, my God, the boss is here to evaluate me. And then discover that Ken Olson really was curious and really didn't know what this engineer was working on, but wanted to know. And then they ended up very quickly in a very meaningful conversation. So the asking and revealing is sort of almost the same process. If I tell you you know, t- tell me something because I need to know and I really don't know. That is a humble revelation, isn't it? I wanted to
2: tell a quick anecdote of a conversation with the CEO who was about to go into a bloody, nasty budget meeting. Um, you know, the the kind of stuff that has to get done, but nobody really wants to be doing it. And just sort of, Out of the blue, I was working in the strategy group, said, God, I would, he, the CEO said, boy, I'd so much rather be spending the next couple hours with you guys. And what what he meant by that was he was going to be, you know, with our group learning stuff that he didn't know, you know, and 90% of it might've been irrelevant, but our job was to sort of be out there kind of poking and prodding and seeing what, what might you know, help the company move forward and innovate. And the CEO sort of recognized that this was going to be two hours where he could sort of sit back and learn as opposed to going out and sort of fighting it out in these in these budget battles, which you know, again, yeah, we've all been there. But it's what what it communicated to me was that there was an an intrinsic preference and value for learning within this mind of the CEO as opposed to controlling, right? The budget meeting was all gonna be, be about control. And he was expressing in a very sort of personal reveal that what he would much rather be doing would be learning. And I, I just found that very powerful. What it, what it communicated was, wow, that how, how could you not want to, to follow this CEO who would, was telling you what I really wanna do is learn from all of you guys. It, it created a, a sort of a, a bond that's so much valuable, more valuable than any formal sense of control.
0: This connects with, with how you embed culture. Very quick examples that are in the Humble Leadership book. The The captain of the aircraft carrier, who discovered that there had been a near major accident on the floor and one of the seamen was going to be disciplined for this event, asked that sailor to be sent up to the admiral's or the captain's quarters. And when that seaman arrived, what the captain said to him was, I'm curious what actually happened down there. Could you just give me the whole story bit by bit? Well, the message got around that this was not punishment. This was inquiry. And you can imagine that captain got a lot of support. And then the other story is this book, Turn the Ship Around, where the submarine captain brings his chief petty officers into the room. And at the very first meeting says, could you guys tell me what's wrong with this ship? And, of course, they didn't believe him at first, but he he hung in there and said, no, I really need to know. I'm new here. Don't expect me to know what's wrong in this ship. You guys run it. You tell me and they very quickly identified stuff that he would have never thought of himself. Apropos Peter's point of the question you don't think to ask had to do with leave policy and all kinds of stuff. So I think leaders have this ability to convey this interest. The tragedy is that so many managers get told that to be a manager, you mustn't show weakness, you mustn't show ignorance. You should always be in charge. You should always—that's just nonsense in today's world. And yet we continue to teach it. It's
2: this, this funny paradox that everybody who works for you know they work for you. There's no question of authority. The question is of influence. And if you're, you may find you're, you're way more influential. By building these bonds of openness and trust, than just sort of trying to remind people that they work for you, you know. But again, to Ed's point, is there clear evidence that we're teaching it any other way? And you know, in management training and business schools, and uh, not not clear that that this is a priority. Even though we would say in the work that we do, and you know, to we've i i always end up quoting Frederick Laloux who said there's in his Reinventing organization's book that there's there's something in the air there's what we're talking about we're not the only ones out there talking about this stuff. These are themes that are coming up all over the place and they're being expressed in slightly different ways but this is this is absolutely happening. and yet to ed's point, who you know who spent what forty plus years at the Sloan School of Management at MIT not clear that the management training programs are, are really really evolving at the same rate to train people in this kind of way of thinking about management and leadership um i mean maybe that's a challenge to your listeners is whether we've whether we're wrong we'd uh, we'd love to be wrong on this
1: i'm rather sure that you're not uh, I, I want to dig deeper into this thought of of humble leadership and humble inquiry and we've explored with a number of guests on this podcast what leads to ethical failures in organizations and we've even had some of the people who've come in to organizations after highly publicized scandals to kind of try to right the, the ship. And an important part of that conversation has been identifying what we need to put in place to enable people to speak up. And in the new edition of your book, Humble Inquiry, you write that the paradox is that the main inhibitor of useful telling is often our own failure to inquire in a way that makes it safe for others to tell us the truth, or at least to share all of what they know. Our failure to ask humbly and with the right attitude has created work climates in which people do not feel psychologically safe to share what they know. Do you even see such work climates in which people withhold, spin, or even lie because they realize it is not really safe to speak the truth? Or are such toxic work climates so commonplace that we fail to even notice this underlying lack of psychological safety? And I know personally, and I think that that many do. And I actually shared something very recently on on LinkedIn about this, and just were just hundreds of people that were just engaging with it and just sharing their own stories on that as well, on kind of the cost or how hard it can be or at least feel to speak up, to to bring up information that is uncomfortable, whether that is that this strategy is maybe not the right thing or whether that is that I'm experiencing that we are operating in a way that is unethical or against the values that we profess to. So what does humble inquiry look like and and why do you believe that it is a remedy to a lack of speaking up?
0: Well, it all connects. When I said that we built this machine model which was built on professional distance, what professional distance permitted even encouraged is the boss is the boss and the employee is the employee. And we found as consultants, many, many cases where employees told us in focus groups or in other settings that, oh, I used to speak up. You know, I when when I found a safety problem or something, I spoke up, I told the boss. And the boss sometimes even politely listened and said, thank you very much. But I could tell that the boss was busy. He or she didn't really want to hear bad news. So I learned that the company got along fine without my information, even if it was a safety issue. So the first major problem to fix is this general model of how you create a climate where bosses stop being disinterested and actually punishing over their previous behavior. Uh, It's it's the boss who creates the lack of speaking up. I think employees have the courage, but they've learned it's either unsafe or pointless. Even probably pointless is more important (laughs) that the bosses don't listen and they don't care. And so why, why should I speak up? So I think in humble inquiry, we make it very clear, if you're not getting people speaking up, you, the boss, have to start that process by being more inviting and more open and actually listening. Listening becomes not just listening, but responding. Responding to what the employee tells you. That's what's often missing. You say, oh, thanks very much, that was very useful, and go back to work. Instead of oh wait a minute you mean that valve is showing some signs of wear maybe we need to look at it that's the response the employee wants.
2: I was going to add too. I wonder if this is sort of this is sort of a dark side of the complexity that we're all managing within. Is that um, what seemed like sort of trivial? faults or trivial refinements or um you know a little issue here and there well we've we've got such a complicated system that these little issues aren't going to come up you know we're going to um uh, it'll go away you know we'll 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 just kind of we don't need to worry about this one cuz we've got these other things that we really need to worry about you know that's of course exacerbated by the fact that You know we're we're driven to meet our quarterly numbers. Uh, You know we can't afford to have a huge rework over there because it'll it'll screw up profitability for the quarter. So you know let's let's focus on those other problems and just let that other one go because we got to move on. You know that's a byproduct of complexity, but it's to Ed's point. It's also a byproduct of that not feeling safe to if if you know that that's in the past how we've responded to little issues being raised, then you're not going to feel particularly safe dying on the sword of another little issue. The problem is that we all know that a lot of times these little issues become very you know horrible, fatal mistakes. You know, isn't that sort of the history of bad accidents over the last 20 or 30 years? Little issues compound, you know, they build on each other.
0: What we're both saying is it's not an ethical problem, it's a practical problem. You say it's ethical to be nice to the employee and listen to them, baloney. It's not an ethical issue, it's if the employee knows stuff that you need to know. And so being nice to the employee is the practice of listening to the employee. That incidentally also makes the employee feel more wanted and maybe be more likely to do a good job, but it should not be an ethical argument ever. It should be a, this is the only way to run groups and organizations. In my view, somebody else may want to make it ethical, but I've always found it's extremely pragmatic to have good, open, trusting communication.
1: I'm thinking as well as as leaders that we are humans. And I, I also think that we, deal with insecurities, we deal with fear of not being enough. And I, I think that there's also the, I mean, I've, I've experienced that myself in situations where, for example, I uh, i mean, just quite recently, I was leading a, a meeting and my colleague, who's also my wife, uh, gave me some, some feedback afterwards, and uh, I was taking too much space, I was talking too much. And my direct kind of inner response is that I want to protect myself, that I want to kind of give the reasons why I was right and whatever, the timing of the feedback was wrong or whatever. But of course, if I take a step back, I realize, yeah, I mean, everything that she's saying was right and I needed to listen to it. But so what what can we do as leaders, being humans and being under the pressure that I think a lot of leaders are in our organizations to to kind of avoid those types of responses and actually kind of what are the strategies to show that humble inquiry and, and not land in instead of that defensive response?
2: Well, I, I'll just share one thought that we often like to call out is that accepting that sometimes you have to put the agenda aside, you have to step away from the immediate task at hand and start asking the process question of, is this working? Are we, are we actually um, sharing the information that we need to share? Step away from the business problem and look at the people problem. Step away from the agenda and look at the context away from the content toward the context. Because if nothing else, it'll it'll free log jams.
0: I think right. our example in the Humble Inquiry book, that's early in the book, is in fact probably the best classic example where the the manager who was in his basement studying very hard for his MIT finance exam and had told his daughter not to interrupt him. And she arrived and said, hi, daddy. And he yelled at her and she left in tears. Uh, he needed that moment to suspend the studying and say, why the hell is my daughter here when I specifically told her not to? He didn't wait. He leapt and uh, ruined his relationship with her temporarily, then discovered the next day that his wife had sent her down, which created then the insight, oh, maybe I should have been talking to my wife about why she sent her daughter down. So it was a very complicated situation that he messed up by yelling at his daughter, instead of taking a moment to ask, why are you here? We need that moment. What's going on? Why, what's happening?
2: we've gone so far as to suggest that in every meeting with every packed agenda maybe you really better start with a few minutes of why are we here and what's going on this gets referred to as mindfulness but you know I, whether or not we want to label it something fancy it's sort of a it's a not losing sight of the context because there's way too much to do with the content and that's generally true <laughs> but boy Um, Sometimes you're way more efficient dealing with the content if you've spent five or 10 minutes being, you know, effectively sharing what's going on in the context.
1: I love that. And I I think that's a great place to to end this conversation. Why are we here and what's going on? And and I think in, in my conversation with you, my conversation with Adam Kahane and, and others that we've had recently on the podcast, I think it's become so clear that at the heart of these issues is relationships. And it's it's not really rocket science. It's it's kind of, in a, in a way, we could look at them as simple things, but they're so important that we get right if we want to build healthy cultures and healthy organizations. So finally, I I just wanted to to ask you both, how can our listeners connect to you and, and follow your work? And I know that you have some new updated versions of both the Corporate Culture Survival Guide and of humble inquiry, and and I would really encourage people to go and get them if you don't already have them. So, So make sure to get them and get the updated versions. Are there other ways that you would want to encourage people to connect with you?
2: We don't actually don't know if there are Swedish translations of of either of those books. We know that also Swedes don't need an English translation because their English skills are so superior anyway. (laughs) Uh, But our website is OCLI.org. So that's the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, OCLI.org. And that has some information about us. It has some references to the newest books that we've published. And of course, the books are available on Amazon and other online
0: sellers. My preference is that if if people ask us questions, we like to respond. But it's best if the questions are somehow connected to our books or what we've written, rather than coming out of the blue.
1: I love that. Thank you so much again, Ed and Peter. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for the incredibly important work that you do.
2: Thanks very much.
0: Thank you. Enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for
1: listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star views and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free pdf on leading see you in two weeks!